Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 3. Verses 1 through 22. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. In our passage this morning, we read about the Word of God preparing the way for Christ by proclaiming a simple message. And this message, as we will see, has one of two effects on all people, no matter who you are. This message will either humble you and bring you to absolute dependence on Christ, or this message will harden your heart and cause you to reject Christ completely. But there is no middle ground. There is no third option. When it comes to the Word of God, we will either respond with humility, which leads to our eternal salvation, or we will respond with pride, the pride which leads to our eternal damnation. Nothing short of the fate of our very souls is at stake this morning. So then, let's listen carefully to the Word of God from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iterea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, a tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Anas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. 
tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Thus says the word of the Lord. Will you bow with me in prayer and ask God to preach the receiving and preaching of his word this morning? Dear Lord, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word from Luke's gospel this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us as your people. We pray that the gospel would go forth in power and clarity so that we might walk in newness of life with you. Lord, we pray that you would convict the sin of pride in us. We pray that you would comfort the brokenhearted and that you would strengthen our faith faith, that we might live more dependently on you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In an article, in an article titled, The Art of Being a Big Shot, the late Howard Butt, who was a very prominent businessman, wrote these words, and I quote, It is my pride that makes me independent of God. It's appealing to me to feel that I am the master of my fate, that I run my own life, call my own shots, go it alone. But that feeling is my basic dishonesty. I can't go it alone. I have to get help from other people. And I can't ultimately rely on myself. I am dependent on God for my next breath. It is dishonest of me to pretend that I am anything but a man, small, weak, and limited. So living independent of God is self-delusion. It's not just a matter of pride being an unfortunate little trait and humility being an attractive little virtue. It's my inner psychological integrity that's at stake. When I am conceited, 
I'm lying to myself about what I am. I am pretending to be God and not man. My pride is the idolatrous worship of myself. And that is the national religion of hell. End quote. I like those words of Howard Butt because they're a very accurate description of pride. Pride is thinking that you can live independent of God. And that way of thinking is delusional. It's a lie that we tell ourselves so that we don't have to confront the hard truth that we are inadequate in need of help. And if we persist in this lie, this self-delusion, we will eventually suffer the eternal torments of hell. Now our pride is something that we are all guilty of. And all of us are in danger of this same fate. So it should make us all tremble with fear to consider it. Thankfully, Luke gives us good news this morning. In the beginning of our passage, Luke tells us that the events that he's writing about occurred in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, when Pilate is governor of Judea, when Herod is the tetrarch or prince of Galilee, Philip is the tetrarch of Iterea and Trachonitis, Licinius is the tetrarch of Abilene, and during the high priesthood of Anas and Caiaphas. Now, I know that is a long list of a bunch of confusing names and titles, but by giving them to us, Luke is doing something very important. He's dating the events that he's writing about. He's letting us know that these events occurred in history sometime around 28 A.D. Now, I know what you're thinking at this point. Why exactly is that good news? Well, this is good news because it tells us that the Word of God has entered into our lives by stepping onto the stage of world history. You see, Luke wants us to know that our God is not some far-off deity who can't interact with us and so just sits back and watches the world burn. No, our God is actively at work in the events of our lives. And not only that, but he has been at work in the events of our lives throughout the course of human history for the good of his people. As a result, the message that the word of God proclaims in our passage this morning is one of real and vital significance to you and to me. I also think that Luke is challenging us here to take the word of God seriously and to respond to it appropriately. Because if we're honest with ourselves, I think we could probably all confess to reading the Bible sometimes as if it were merely some academic exercise, while at the same time failing to appreciate the reality of its content and the implications that it has for us. But these are not just abstract concepts that we are reading about here. What Luke has written about for our benefit really has occurred. And the word of God that spoke back then still speaks and applies 
to us today just as much as it did to the people who first heard it. Therefore, we are just as responsible as the original audience for how we respond to the word of God in our passage this morning. Next, Luke tells us in verse 2 that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. Now, this is the same John whose birth was announced back in chapter 1 by the angel Gabriel, who told us that this John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So then, when we read about the word of God coming to John in our passage in verse 2, that should bring us to the edge of our seat in anticipation because it tells us that everything that the angel Gabriel said is now about to happen. John, the son of Zechariah, is about to prepare the people of Israel for the arrival of the Lord their God by proclaiming a message. And we see in verse 3, this message is about, is about a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But here we need to be careful about something. This does not mean that, Jesus, that John is teaching that his baptism actually has the power to forgive anyone's sins. On the contrary, on the contrary John's baptism was only a subsequent sign or symbol that indicated that a person had indeed repented. And just because a person repented did not mean that their sins were forgiven or that they were suddenly made right with God. It's important that we as Christians are clear on this. Left to our own devices, apart from Christ, our repentance has no power to save us or make us right with God. Our repentance has no power apart from Christ to save us or make us right with God. So then, if John's baptism had no power to forgive sins because the Christ had not yet come, what was the point of it? Well, the point of his baptism is made clear to us in verses 4 through 6, which tells us that John's baptism had a twofold purpose. The purpose of John's baptism, and really his entire ministry, was A, to fulfill the word of God. John, the son of Zechariah, is that voice crying out in the wilderness, which Isaiah had prophesied about hundreds of years earlier. So we see that in John the Baptist, God's word was being fulfilled. And B, the second purpose of John's ministry was to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, the Messiah, who would save his people from sin and restore them to a right relationship with God. And then verses 5 and 6 they paint for us a picture of what that will look like when the way of the Lord is fully prepared. When the way for the Lord is fully prepared, we are told that every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh 
shall see the salvation of God. What this means is simply that every obstacle that stands in the way between the Lord and his people will be removed. And for us, that great obstacle is our sin. And it's not just any sin. It's specifically the sin of pride, which tells us that we are good enough just as we are. It's the kind of thinking that tells us that we are self-sufficient. That's the kind of thinking that the crowds were guilty of, which is why John speaks to them the way that he does. Just look at verse 7, where John says to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? A brood of vipers. What a strange way of talking to people that you're trying to save. But in addressing them this way, John is challenging their pride. Their pride that came from being the children or the offspring of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 6 through 8, God made a promise to Abraham, their father, saying, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That was God's promise to Abraham. And in light of that promise, the Jewish people thought that God was obligated to save them because they were the offspring or the children of Abraham. They thought that salvation was their birthright, which is why it must have been so shocking for them to hear John call them a brood of vipers. Now, the word brood is just another word for offspring. And of course, a viper is a type of serpent. But in the Old Testament, serpents often represent God's enemies. So when John is calling the Jewish crowds that day a brood of vipers, he's actually calling them the offspring of the devil. He's calling them God's enemies. And unless they bear fruit in keeping with repentance, John warns them that they will be cut down and thrown into the fires of hell. John also warns them that this coming destruction is imminent. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, which means that this destruction, this punishment, this wrath, it could take place at any time. There is no time to delay one's repentance. We are not guaranteed a tomorrow. If there is any hope of being saved, you must repent immediately. 
And here, we must heed John's warning every bit as much as his original audience. Because just like them, we too can be arrogant about our salvation, can't we? This especially applies to our young people in the church. It's all too easy to presume that our salvation is a matter of course, just because of who our parents are, or because we go to the right church, or because our dad or pastor is an elder. But the truth is that your family can't save you. Neither can your church or the fact that you might attend a Christian school. Your reputation can't save you either. It doesn't matter if you think that you're a pretty good person. It doesn't matter if other people think that you're a pretty good person. Because in the eyes of God, apart from Christ, we are totally depraved sinners. We are a brood of vipers who justly deserve God's wrath and his condemnation. And so we see that in verses 10 through 14, various groups of people respond to John's message by asking him, what then shall we do? And you can almost hear the desperation in their voice as you read that part of your passage. What then? What then, John, do we need to do? The first group of people to ask this question were the crowds. These were most likely your common, everyday, hardworking, but lower-class individuals. John answers by telling them to share life's two most basic necessities, food and clothing. These were things they probably had little of that would have come at a cost if they gave them away. Next, the tax collectors ask him the same question. And John tells them to collect no more than they are authorized to do. Now, the thing that we need to understand about tax collectors here is that their only earnings actually came from what they could extort from other people. So if they were honest tax collectors, they would be broke tax collectors. John here is telling them to make an extremely hard sacrifice. The third and final group that approached John were the soldiers, who, because they were, bore arms and were under military leaders rather than civilian authorities, found it all too easy to extort money from others because they had no accountability. To this group, John tells them to stop extorting money by threats and intimidation, and to instead be content with their wages. And since the soldiers also made a very basic wage, this too would have resulted in a loss of income and a lifestyle of poverty. Again, we see John, to all three groups, is appealing to them to live sacrificial lives for the good of their neighbors. Now, John's response to the crowds, the tax collectors, and the soldiers might seem strange to us, almost as if he was preaching that salvation could somehow be achieved by works. But that is not actually what John is doing here. 
we must remember the sin that John is addressing. He's addressing the people's pride, which had caused them to be cold and calloused towards one another. Their pride had them putting their own personal needs and desires above others. Therefore, true repentance would involve doing the exact opposite. True repentance would be a lifestyle. True repentance would express itself in acts of sacrificial love, which meant sharing what little you had with others and becoming poor for the sake of your neighbors. This was not a salvation by works methodology, but it was a totally different mindset that counted other people as being more significant than oneself. The soon-to-be-coming Lord that the people were expecting would himself have this same mindset. In Philippians 2, we learn that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And elsewhere in the Gospels, we learn that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when John tells his listeners to stop extorting and to share what they have for the sake of others, it is only to prepare them for the arrival of the coming Lord so that they might be ready to follow the Messiah who will ask of them the very same thing. In verse 15, we see that the people by this point were now eagerly expecting the arrival of the Messiah. And this tells us something important about John's preaching. It tells us that his preaching was very effective. His preaching forced the people to see themselves for who they truly were. As a result, they realized their own inadequacy and their need for a Savior. You see, even though John had told them how they ought to live, the people knew that they were inadequate to carry out John's instructions. They knew that they could not do this on their own power. It was too much for them to bear. This then created in them an even greater longing and a sense of anticipation for the coming of the Lord. In fact, they were so eager, they started to look at John and wonder if he might be the Messiah. To which John responds by giving us a very helpful distinction between his baptism and the baptism of the coming Christ. John tells us that he only baptizes them with water, meaning that his baptism has no power to save people from their sins. But the Messiah, on the other hand, the Messiah will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Just as fire has the power to refine gold by removing all of its impurities and leaving only what is pure. Such is the awesome power of the Holy Spirit when it is at work in the lives of God's people. 
When it comes to baptism, it's the Holy Spirit that makes all the difference. And it's only by His power that people can truly live transformed lives of sacrificial love instead of self-centered greed. John then goes on to say that this coming Messiah will clear the threshing floor by gathering the wheat into the barn and throwing the chaff into the unquenchable fires of hell. This means that since the Messiah has the power to give the Holy Spirit to whomever he wills, he will be ultimately responsible for determining the fate of people's souls. And the Messiah will not be fooled or manipulated. To those who sincerely repent and forsake their pride, he will give them the gift of eternal life. But the unrepentant, And the proud he will throw into everlasting torment. In Matthew's gospel, Christ himself tells us that we can identify who is who by the fruit that they produce. The penitent person will inevitably bear fruit in keeping with repentance by the kind of acts of obedience and humble service that John prescribes in our passage. Such a lifestyle relies on the power of the Holy Spirit and gives all the glory to God. But the unrepentant person, while he or she may be capable of doing good works, will only do good deeds to puff themselves up even more and to support their own sense of pride and their egos which tells them that they don't need a Christ. They don't need a Savior. This is the kind of person that Herod the Tetrarch was. He was a proud and arrogant man who sought only to serve himself. He did not think he needed a Savior, and so he lived however he pleased. In doing so, he stole his brother's wife and committed adultery with her. But the word of God came to him just the same as everyone else. Only Herod could not bear to hear it. And so Luke tells us that he locked John up in prison. This part of our passage tells us that the word of God applies to all people. No matter what your position is or the amount of power that you may have, no matter who you are, Everyone ought to have the opportunity to hear God's word. But we know that not all people will respond to it in the same way. Some people will be like the crowds and the tax collectors who respond in humility and receive God's word, while others like Herod will respond with, re- with pride and reject it. However, this doesn't mean that the word of God is somehow deficient or unable to save certain people. On the contrary, the word of God is doing exactly what it's supposed to. It's softening and it's hardening human hearts, separating the wheat from the chaff. 
and thereby preparing a people for the coming of the Lord their King, who will save some and judge others. And this Savior is revealed to us in verses 21 through 22. And these last two verses are absolutely the most shocking part of our passage. Because here we see Jesus, the long-expected Messiah, who would save his people from their sins, being baptized with all the rest of the people. But notice with me the stark difference in how our passage describes the people and how it describes Jesus. Earlier, the people were proclaimed by John to be children of the devil, doomed to suffer God's wrath and displeasure. Jesus, on the other hand, is proclaimed to be God's beloved, with whom God is well pleased. The people are wicked, and Jesus is righteous. So why is it that Jesus is getting baptized for the forgiveness of sins along with everyone else? He should come as a strange thing to you to see this. The answer is that Jesus is not getting baptized for himself as if he needed to repent for anything. Jesus was sinless, so he had nothing to repent of. But nevertheless, he was baptized with sinners so that he could be counted among them in order to bear our sins. Yes, Jesus came to save, but God's justice still needed to be upheld and his wrath still needed to be satisfied. We all, all of us, have committed a heinous act of treason against a righteous and a holy God. And that debt needs to be paid. Therefore, Christ's baptism was a public proclamation that he had come to take the place of a brood of vipers and to suffer God's wrath in our place in order to pay the penalty for our crime. And so the watery baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist was merely a symbol that he had come to do just that very thing. The baptism of Jesus is foreshadowing the flood of God's wrath that would immerse Jesus as he hung on the cross on our behalf in a baptism of judgment. And there, it is there on the cross that Jesus intercedes for sinners like you and me. There on the cross, he pleads with God the Father, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it's that baptism according to the Apostle Paul, that everyone who repents has now been baptized into. You and I, we all partake of this same baptism insofar as we repent. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Paul says to us, Do you not know 
that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. And it's that passage of Paul's that now explains to us the saving power of Christ's baptism. If all Christ had done was die on the cross, then he would be no savior. He would have no power to save us if that's all that Christ did. But thankfully, that was, Christ, that was not Christ's only work. Not only was Christ buried in a baptism of judgment, but he was also vindicated as the truly righteous one when he triumphantly rose from the grave, thereby defeating the power of sin and death over us. So then when we repent and are baptized, not only are we identified in his death, but we are identified in his triumphant resurrection. As a result, insofar as we are united in Christ, we can rest assured and have peace, knowing that we will never be cast into the unquenchable fires of hell. But instead, we will now inherit the gift of eternal life with him. And until that day comes when we enter his kingdom, his eternal kingdom, Christ in the meantime has given us something. He's given us his Holy Spirit through the sacrament of our baptism as a guarantee of our inheritance. And it is by us relying on his Holy Spirit, that we are now empowered to die to ourselves each and every day and to live lives of sacrificial love and humble service for the good and well-being of our neighbors. But here's the thing. That is impossible for us to do. That is, unless you have first heard the word of God and responded in humility by asking the same questions as the crowds, what then shall we do? What then shall we do to be saved? Unless you ask that question, the answer, you cannot do these things by yourself. And so the answer to that question is the same that John gave. You must forsake your pride. The pride that tells you that you are good enough just as you are. And you must repent. You must turn away from your sin and put your trust, your hope, and your complete and utter dependence on Christ and the saving power of his baptism. So in closing, if you remember nothing else from this sermon this morning, 
I really hope and pray that you would remember this. Remember that on this day, you heard the word of God plead with you, exhort you to forsake your pride, to repent, and to trust in Jesus. Forsake your pride, repent, and trust in Jesus. And now that you have heard that simple message, it is your responsibility with what you do with it. May God have mercy on his people. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who draw near to your people to speak to us and to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord our King. And we thank you, Lord, that that King has already come in the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to unite us more with Christ that we may be able to walk in the newness of life that Paul describes. We pray, Lord, that you would empower us to live lives that would glorify you by trusting in Jesus. Please help us to do just that. Help us to depend on Christ even more than we have thus far. Help us to walk more closely to him and with him, that we may be sanctified by his presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.